Normal is an illusion. What is normal for the spider is chaos for the fly. Charles Adams. Warning. The following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, most unthinkable, and most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. On today's episode of The Jury Room, a series of sadistic killings in the 1980s and 1990s south-central Los Angeles. A serial killer who got away with his heinous murders for far too long. A police force and local government who did more harm than good. This is the Grim Sleeper. On November 20th, 1988, 30-year-old Anitra Washington was walking to a party at a friend's house when she stopped to admire a bright orange pinto. The car had plaid orange seats and slick white racing stripes on the hood. Washington was impressed. She didn't notice right away that the driver was inside the car, watching her, waiting. Casually, he rolled down the window. The man, in his late thirties, looked friendly and approachable. He smiled at her, asked where she was going, offered her a ride. Only a minute or two into the drive, the driver's demeanor changed entirely. He became cold and quiet. Then, he changed directions. He told Washington he had to pick up money from his uncle's house before he dropped her off. He pulled over and she waited in the car for him. When he returned, he was in a sour mood. He mumbled something under his breath. And when Washington asked him what he said, he shot her in the chest. When Washington woke up, she hadn't even realized she had passed out. The driver was on top of her, holding her down, and she was bleeding from her chest. She reached out for the door handle, and the driver shouted, Bitch, I will shoot you again. It was only then that Washington realized she had been shot. She asked him why he shot her, to which he responded that she had been dogging me out. He kept calling her Brenda, which was not her name. It was almost like he thought she was someone else. Washington passed out again from the pain. Her captor raped her. She woke up from the harsh flashes of a Polaroid. He was taking pictures of her naked, bleeding body. She passed out again. Then, she was face down on the concrete, pushed from the car like trash. The driver must have thought she was dead, but she wasn't. With incredible strength and bravery, Anitra Washington dragged her bloody, 
wounded body to her friend's house. She knocked, but the friend wasn't home. Finally, hours later, the friend arrived and found Washington bleeding on her porch. She called an ambulance, and Anitra Washington became the only officially recorded survivor of a vicious, heartless serial killer, the Grim Sleeper. She wouldn't see justice for 22 years. Lonnie Franklin Jr., better known as the Grim Sleeper, was born in 1952. He grew up in South Central L.A., in the same house that he would live in as an adult, in the same neighborhood where he would prey on countless victims. South Central was a neglected Los Angeles neighborhood notorious for crime, drugs, and poverty. Franklin grew up around gangs and criminal activity. While stationed in Stuttgart, Germany, he and two other U.S. soldiers stopped to ask directions from a 17-year-old girl, identified only as Ingrid W. passing by their car. After a brief friendly conversation they offered young Ingrid a ride home she accepted when Ingrid got into the car they pulled out a knife and held it to her throat they warned her not to make a noise or any sudden movements they drove her to an isolated field where they repeatedly gang raped the teenager they snapped pictures of her during the rape Afterward, Ingrid, quick thinking, flirted with Franklin, pretending to be attracted to him. She got his phone number, which she turned into the police as soon as she was released. That same night, Franklin kidnapped another woman, an 18-year-old. The young woman screamed, which caught the attention of neighbors who called the police. Franklin was forced to let the girl go and run away. Ingrid called Franklin hours after her attack. She told him she wanted to meet him at the train station. When he arrived and walked toward her, Ingrid dropped a handkerchief on the ground. Out of seemingly nowhere, police emerged and arrested Franklin. It turned out that Ingrid and the police had plotted the setup. Lonnie Franklin Jr. was generally discharged from the United States Army following the attack, as opposed to dishonorably discharged, which would have been far more fitting considering his heinous act. After an eight-day trial in the summer of 1974, Franklin was convicted and arrested for the kidnapping and rape of Ingrid W., as well as for the attempted kidnapping of the 18-year-old. He was sentenced to three years and four months. He served less than one year of his sentence. According to LAPD detective Darren Dupree, we don't know why he got out. The other guys did their whole time. He got caught and got away with it. And he came back to LA and he started getting girls again. 
But as soon as they showed hesitation or gave him a hard time, he killed them. Any inkling of him getting caught or them treating him bad, he killed them. Indeed, when Lonnie Franklin Jr. was released from prison and returned to his home in South Central, he was ready for blood. By the 1980s, the crack cocaine epidemic had plagued the streets of Franklin's neighborhood. Gang and drug-related violence were at an all-time high, and violence was commonplace. The police largely neglected the neighborhood, lacking an interest or a shred of empathy for a mostly black community that was suffering and lacked any resources for meaningful change. In fact, when the bodies of black people who happened to be addicts or sex workers were discovered by police, they nicknamed them NHI or no human involved. They rarely investigated the crimes, instead dehumanizing and degrading the victims. It was the perfect backdrop for a serial killer. When Lonnie Franklin Jr. was rampaging the streets, so were two other serial killers, the night stalker Richard Ramirez and the South Side Slayer Michael Hughes. These sadistic men took advantage of a system that did not care about their victims. Both Michael Hughes and Lonnie Franklin Jr. dumped the bodies of their victims on the sidewalks in plain sight. Knowing that police would never bother to investigate the deaths of these vulnerable black women. At some point between his release from prison and his first known murder, just a few years later, Lonnie met and married Sylvia Franklin. Together, the couple had two kids, Christopher Franklin and a daughter who remains anonymous. Sylvia was a Christian woman with strong values and beliefs. She was loyal to her husband until his conviction in 2016. According to the son Christopher's ex-girlfriend, Dela Sean, however, Lonnie and Sylvia were rarely seen together, and Sylvia would often leave the house for days at a time. Franklin's murder and rape spree occurred during his marriage, and Franklin would often brag to his friends about the sex he was having, showing them Polaroid pictures of the prostitutes and compromising positions as proof. He kept a box of these photographs in the garage, not too subtle about his extramarital affairs. Franklin was well-liked and respected by his friends and neighbors. He was often working in his front yard on cars with other mechanics and would engage in upbeat conversation with anyone who passed. He loved to talk about basketball, baseball, and television, boasting his knowledge of his favorite LA teams, the Lakers and the Dodgers, and his favorite TV show, CSI and 48 Hours. He was friendly, conversational, and approachable. He dealt stolen cars and had a reputation as an expert in his criminal acts, but no one in the 
already crime-riddled neighborhood thought anything of it. On the contrary, they revered in his keen ability for petty theft. Anything they asked for, Lonnie knew how to get it. He'd gift his friends stolen flat-screen TVs and other luxuries. Neighbors knew not to ask about the rotating stash of car parts stacked up by his garage. Franklin attended graduation ceremonies and birthday parties of his neighbors, and he taught his son Christopher how to drive. He took his mother-in-law to to her doctor's appointments. According to one neighbor, Yvette Williams, Franklin's family didn't want for nothing and Franklin was known for taking care of his family and his home. Neighbors were able to turn a blind eye to his criminal behavior because as many recalled to an interview with the Los Angeles Times, it wasn't like he was killing people. Oh, the irony. Franklin sold stolen cars, electronics, from TVs to computers and bicycles. He was an expert mechanic, the person his neighbors turned to when they needed someone to work on their car. One neighbor said everybody knew Lonnie because he was their go-to guy. Franklin made enough money this way to keep his family secure and comfortable. He was considered the richest man in the neighborhood. Sure, Franklin dated around, but he was such a revered member of the community that neighbors were able to look right past it. At one point, he even brought a van he owned to a friend who remains anonymous. This man says he performed various insurance jobs for Lonnie. This time, Franklin asked him point blank to set his van on fire. The man said that he thought I was going to find something of value in the car, searched through it, and discovered some female clothes which had some blood on them. He found some more blood in the back seat and on the floor of the car. He turned a blind eye, grateful to have a paid job to perform. Franklin used his charming facade to charm his neighbors and family into blind trust. Still, there were some warning signs. Franklin was quick to anger, especially towards women, his mood switching from joy to anger in mere seconds if he felt a woman was being rude to him. Worse, his son's ex-girlfriend said that on one occasion she opened Franklin's glove compartment and found Polaroids of naked women and women's underwear. She quickly shut the glove compartment closed before Franklin noticed that she was found in there. Even these signs, though, were not enough for his community to distrust him. No one could have predicted that at nightfall, when his neighbors were asleep and not watching, this supposed family man would transform into a deadly monster. In August of 1985, Deborah Jackson would step into Franklin's car, shutting the door behind her. 
she would become Franklin's first known recorded murder victim. The 29-year-old cocktail waitress was waiting for a bus when Franklin saw her and offered her a ride home. When she was trapped in his car, he shot her in the chest before raping her and taking photographs of her nude body. He shot her two more times and dumped her body in an alley. When police found her, they assumed she was the victim of a drug deal or sex work gone wrong. They did not further investigate her death. And it wasn't for three more years that they realized she could be tied to other similar deaths occurring in the neighborhood. After Jackson's murder, Franklin began to target crack-addicted women and sex workers, vulnerable members of the community that he considered easy targets. He killed six more women in the next three years, that we know of. Franklin would pull over when he noticed a woman walking alone at night and ask her if she wanted crack or money. If she said yes, she'd get in the car with him and he would ask for a blowjob or another sexual act. He picked up victims in two cars, the bright orange Pinto and the blue and white van that he would later pay his friend to burn for him. The van had no seats in the back and was carpeted. He locked women inside of it and raped and shot them right there. Many of the hundreds of Polaroids later found at Franklin's house were taken inside of it. Franklin shot most victims, but strangled others. You ever wish you could learn just a bit more about the world, but have no idea where to start? Well, I know how you feel. And that's what the Assorted Goods Podcast is here for. Join Dan, me, a bad student turned curious mind who's just trying to get a tiny bit smarter as he gets a little older. Every episode, I pick a big topic or idea, do a little research, see what I find, and then I pass it all along to you. It's a podcast for anyone who's too damn busy to do the research. It's what I'm here for. So stop by Assorted Goods, have a listen, and join me on my journey to figure out the world one story at a time. Find Assorted Goods wherever you get your podcast, and I'll see you there. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Jury Room Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin. Thanks for listening. Now, I have a lot to cover today, but I'm really excited about some news that has come out over the last couple of weeks. First and foremost, if anybody who has listened to the Ken and Barbie episode, well, I'll be happy to know that the case for Brianna Maitland has actually been funded. There have been a couple of people on Twitter, her DNA, all, all the evidence will now be privately tested, and hopefully, hopefully, we can bring some answers home to her family. So a huge shout-out to Paul Holes and Billy Jensen. They were about 50% funded before these two finished off funding this case. So a huge... Thank you to them. And good job, Onthrum and DNA Solves. Let's bring some answers home. Now, I try not to bring politics or, you know, light to anything that's crazy that's going on right now because obviously that is first and foremost in front of everybody's face right now. And the last thing I want to do is bring attention to that. 
No, I'm not going to be talking about politics ever. But I do want to talk about a story that I found just downright despicable. Now the headline reads as as follows. Managers at Tyson Meat Plant had betting pool on how many workers could get COVID, the lawsuit alleges. Now, I remember back when the pandemic started and there were a bunch of news articles from, you know, businesses losing, you know, product and such, so on and so forth. I remember Tyson being the front and center, you know, keeping their plants open no matter what, even though they were having huge outbreaks. Now, this explains a lot. And is downright fucking disgusting. How could anyone live with themselves knowing that they're betting against the people who are keeping them in busy in business? Fuck you, Tyson. Fuck you. Now this next story, it's a little bit, it's a little sad, but again kind of the theme I guess of this year but Michael J. Fox is retiring again and I personally I love Michael J. Fox he's been a personal uh, favorite actor of mine since I was a kid Back to the Future 2 is easily on my top 5 of most favorite movies ever I love the the hoverboard and the whole futuristic aspect of it. Now, obviously we hit 2015 and well, things aren't, aren't exactly what they predicted. Right. So, but I really enjoyed Michael J. Fox's work. He was always, he seemed like always a, a wholesome guy. And I'm sad to see that he's having more health issues. I feel like he could have been an even bigger star than he was. Mr. Michael J. Fox, we wish you the best, and we hope. Now, this next story that I wanted to talk about comes from Lolly's True Crime World, yet again. It's a great blog. Go check them out. She now has a website. You'll actually find a link to my podcast. It's a great, great tool to get in contact with Lolly and Jared and get them, you know, get all the information that you can from them. But today's blog post that I want to highlight is the East Lanshire Ripper never caught. Now this is a fucked up story. I don't know much about it, but I do feel that over the course of the next couple of months, this is definitely something that I'm going to cover. I will provide a link to the blog article below. Go check it out. Read up on this disgusting murders that took place. Now, this case is from, you know, the 1990s. But again, please go show some love for Lolly. I wanted to talk about something that I found to be very sad but very thankful at the same time. I wanted to take a moment of silence to remember 
Mr. Alex Trebek. I'm Mike Richards, the executive producer of Jeopardy. Over the weekend, we lost our beloved host, Alex Trebek. This is an enormous loss for our staff and crew, for his family, and for his millions of fans. He loved this show and everything it stood for. In fact, he taped his final episodes less than two weeks ago. He will forever be an inspiration for his constant desire to learn, his kindness, and for his love of his family. We will air his final 35 episodes as they were shot. That's what he wanted. On behalf of everyone here at Jeopardy, thank you for everything, Alex. This is Jeopardy. Now, I don't know about you, but Alex Trebek was a huge part of my childhood. I grew up watching Jeopardy! with my grandma, watching Wheel of Fortune with Pat Sajak. It was kind of one would play right after the other. But Mr. Alex Trebek was always just a wholesome person, just so down-to-earth, humble, And he will be missed. Now, they are going to be airing 35 episodes. He he had taped 35 episodes before he passed. So I saw an article that they said it, they should have episodes playing with him on it through through the end of December. So, Mr. Alex Trebek, if you're out there, wherever you are, we miss you, and we love you, and there's a lot of people whose lives you have touched. But I am also curious as to who they're going to tap for the replacement host for Jeopardy. Let me know in the comment section down below, wherever you can, get my attention. Send me an email, juryroompodcast at gmail.com. Reach out. Tell me who you think they're going to who you think they're going to tap for the next host of Jeopardy. Now today's missing person case, we're going to cover Brandon Lawson. He was last seen on August 9th, 2013 near Bronte, Texas. His full name is Brandon Mason Lawson. He's five, nine. His age at the time of disappearance was 26 he weighed 230 pounds. He had brown hair, blue eyes. He was Caucasian. And his current age would be 34. If you have any information about Brandon's disappearance, please contact the Texas Department of Public Safety. Their phone number is 512-424-5074. The case number is M. One three zero eight zero zero five. 
Now, Brandon left his home in San Angelo, Texas around midnight on August 9th, 2013. Around 1.30 a.m., he ran out of gas on Highway 277 near Bronte, Texas. He called his brother, then called 911, saying he was in a field. His truck was found abandoned on the road, but Brandon could not be located. Brandon was last seen wearing a yellow jacket, camouflage shorts, and white Air Max sneakers. He was carrying his droid razor cell phone. He has multiple tattoos on his arms, neck, back, and chest, which I will link to the post where I found this case so you can see the tattoos. Again, please contact the department. The Texas Department of Public Safety at 512-424-5074 with any information that you have on trying to locate Brandon Mason Lawson. Brandon, if you're out there, we're just trying to bring you home, man. Thanks for listening to today's episode on The Grim Sleeper. I hope you guys are enjoying the story. This is a despicable human being. Garbage to the fullest. Monster. I don't even know how to describe how this story makes me feel. The one thing it definitely makes me feel is rage towards the police work involved in this case. They had so many opportunities to catch this guy, to fix the situation. And they didn't. Now, I don't want to give away too much of the second half of the story, but trust me, it's going to just despicable, disgusting, vile waste of breath he is. And a fucking coward found dead in his police, in his cell. Fucking coward. I also want to give a big shout out to today's promotions. Now, the podcast community is huge, but there's also a very much a smaller side of it. Now, with that being said, I want to give a shout out to the Crime Time Nerds, Nat and Ashley. They're great. And also the Assorted Good Podcast. Both great podcasts. I will link to them below. Please make sure you go give them a like and a follow. And let them know you heard about them here. Thanks for listening. Make sure you go leave a review on iTunes. Anywhere you can. There's going to be a link if you have a suggestion for any case that you want me to cover, there will be a link below. Missing person cases, there's going to be a link below. And a feedback a, a feedback link for this episode. Fill that out. It helps me get better. Let's me know where you guys are at with this podcast. I will say I put out my first episode in the middle of October. And we're now in the middle of 
November, and we've doubled our listener support this month over last month. So thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Listen to me tell you true crime stories. I appreciate it. As always, click the links below. Go follow me. Find me. Let's talk. Let's have a conversation. And thanks for listening. Hi there, nerdlings. I'm Ash. And I'm Nat. We're the host of Crime Time Nerds, a podcast that focuses on lesser-known investigations, unsolved cases, and small-town crimes. Join us as we pick up our flashlights and begin our search for answers as we venture down those dark true crime paths together. Join us every Sunday as we explore the nature of these often heinous and heartbreaking cases. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or your normal podcast provider. You can visit our website at crimetimenerds.com or follow us on our social media platforms. Don't forget to trust your gut, and we hope you join us each and every week. For the ones he shot, he often continued to rape them after the shooting. When he was done, he would shoot them again to finish the job before dumping them in the street, on sidewalks, in alleyways, in dumpsters. After his third victim was discovered, police noticed that the same bullet from the same gun, a 25 caliber handgun, was used on multiple victims, all of whom were discovered abandoned on the street like trash. They realized that these women must be victims of a serial murderer. They knew that the man was targeting crack addicts and sex workers. Still, for reasons unknown, they did not release this critical information to the public. Unlike in both other cases that we have covered on the show, police gave out no warning to women that a hunter was on the loose. They did not launch an investigation to find the killer and to put him behind bars. They said nothing. They warned the community of nothing. None of the victims' names were released to the local news. The community had no idea there was a killer on the prowl. If they had released a statement, many other lives may have been saved. A friend of Lonnie's, Richard, joined Lonnie to look for cars to steal and sell on the black market. One night, Lonnie pulled over when he saw a woman working the streets. He leapt out of the car and grabbed the woman. As Richard stared in shock at his friend, he pulled her by the hair, trying to drag her to the car, and she screamed. There happened to be police nearby who came when they heard her scream. Lonnie and Richard were both arrested that night, but they were not fingerprinted, and they were both released within hours. Richard also claimed that Lonnie asked him to clean out his car on one occasion. Richard noticed dark stains like oil all over the carpet. In retrospect, he believes that the stains were probably blood. On some occasions, Franklin would pick up women with other friends in the car. One such friend, Jerry, was interviewed in the documentary, Tales of the Grim Sleeper. According to Jerry, Lonnie would torture the women that they had picked up right in front of him. Jerry was addicted to crack cocaine at the time. 
and was usually busy getting high while Lonnie tortured his victims. Jerry said the women would howl and start crying, and Lonnie thought it was fun. He would laugh or wink an eye at me and let me know, you know, he's just having fun. Jerry said that Lonnie liked to get rough with them and would often stick screwdrivers in them while they cried out in pain. When he was done with his tortures, he would drop Jerry off at his house and drive off. The women, now trapped alone with their sadistic torturer, he would then proceed to kill them. Of the women identified by the police as Franklin's victims, Jerry knew more than half of them. Still, he was never interviewed by police, even after Franklin's arrest. Franklin was known for getting angry with women at the drop of a hat. If they dared to engage in a sexual act with him or attempted to leave the car, he would shoot them point blank. While this has never been confirmed, friends of Lonnie theorize that his hatred from women spawned from a brief marriage with the woman he was with before Sylvia. These friends explained that his first wife was addicted to crack and would spend all of Franklin's money on her addiction. Franklin developed a strong hatred for crack addicts and according to his friends, he would look at you like dirty. He'd look down on you if you drank or did drugs. This might explain why he targeted crack addicts. While Franklin's two children were growing up, they were exposed to some of their father's horrifying behavior. According to his son Christopher's ex-girlfriend, Franklin used to drive his car carrying a loaded handgun right on his lap. His children grew up around thinking that this dangerous behavior was the norm. Christopher himself claims that as a child, his father would bring women into the garage. Christopher would watch through a peephole as Lonnie savagely raped them. Franklin even raped Christopher's babysitter. According to the babysitter, Franklin would have Christopher play video games or watch TV. While he was distracted, he would force the babysitter to get into his van with him. There, he would tie her up and rape her taking Polaroids of her naked body in compromising positions. When he was finished, she was expected to return to Christopher and finish her babysitting shift. It was that late November kidnapping and attempted murder of Anitra Washington that would coin Lonnie Franklin Jr. the nickname, the Grim Sleeper. During Washington's recovery, she was able to describe Franklin's car in great detail and even provided enough description of Franklin for police to make a sketch of the rapist. The police, unsurprisingly, never did release their new leads to the public. Still, Franklin was terrified of getting caught. After failing to murder Washington, he took a sleep from killing for 13 years, or so they say. Franklin's urge to kill was likely too strong for him to just stop killing altogether for 13 long years. During that long hiatus, Franklin was employed 
as a sanitation worker and would have gained invaluable knowledge of exactly how to dispose of a body so no one could ever find it. Many more of the South Central sex workers and crack addicts went missing during this time and it is likely that at least some of them were victims of the Grim Sleeper who had perfected his murderous ways in an effort to remain unsuspected by police. LAPD detective Darren Dupree told the Los Angeles Times, I don't think he stopped killing. Detective Dennis Kilclone agreed. We know he wasn't sleeping. Clearly, Franklin became more careful because he was so afraid of getting caught. Washington's purse had been left in Franklin's car after the attack, and her driver's license was inside of it. A year after the incident, a strange man rang her doorbell. He asked her, Do you know me? To which she replied, Am I supposed to? After that, he walked away. Washington realized after Franklin's arrest when his photo and name were finally released to the media that this was the man who had shot her. While Washington was the only officially recorded survivor of Franklin, there were many more survivors who came forward in the aftermath of his arrest. One such woman, known only as Cookie, was a sex worker who was picked up by Lonnie multiple times over the course of six or seven months. Cookie described Franklin as nice, intelligent at the beginning, but that he soon asked me to do weird things, like take a 40-ounce bottle and penetrate herself with it. He also asked Cookie to bring him more girls. She brought him at least four, all of whom she never saw again. Each of them went missing during the Grim Sleeper's sleep. Another survivor, who remains anonymous, said that Franklin took her into his garage. She said that everything was soundproofed. No one can hear you outside. She added that she was scared. It was one door that he locked from the inside. He started getting aggressive. This woman carried the sleeping drug Vizine on her for safety. Brilliantly, she asked Franklin for a glass of water, and she drugged it when he wasn't looking. When Franklin took a sip, he passed out, and she was able to escape. Another woman, left inside of his van, said that was taking my clothes where I couldn't put them back on. He accidentally left the van door cracked open and the woman ran away naked to a neighbor's house. These women were unable to go to the police because of their status of illegal sex workers and drug addicts. Helpless, they had no other choice but to carry on with their lives. Still, when they learned that the police knew there was a serial killer preying on women like them and refused to release that information to the public, they were crushed. One woman explained through tears in an interview that yes, she was a sex worker, 
but that doesn't mean I'm nothing. Like I'm a piece of trash. I was trapped. I was trapped. I was trapped. It's not what I wanted. That's not the life I wanted. She may have never found herself in the clutches of a killer if she was warned of what his car looked like. If she had seen a sketch of his face. If she was aware that there was a hunter on the loose. But she didn't know. So she was left to fight for her life alone and afraid and neglected by the very system that was supposed to protect her. After 13 years of hunting undetected, the naked body of a 15-year-old was found beaten and strangled and dumped in an alley. A little over a year later, the body of 35-year-old Valerie McCorvey was also found in an alley. She had also been strangled to death. The bodies were tested and their DNA matched the multiple murder victims discovered in the 1980s. The police knew then that the murderer they had been aware of decades ago was once again engaging in a killing spree. They ran the perpetrator's DNA through the system and no match was found. This is remarkable considering that Franklin had been arrested numerous times for petty theft, assault, and battery. Never in any of his arrests was he fingerprinted or DNA tested. In 2007, still undetected by police, Franklin claimed his last victim. The body of 25-year-old Janika Peters was found in a dumpster. It was only after this final killing, decades after the police knew that there was a serial killer on the loose, they finally formed a task force dedicated to tracking down the grim sleeper. Still, the task force did not identify Franklin through their police work. They identified Franklin because his son, Christopher, was arrested for a misdemeanor and taken into jail. By the late 2000s, it was standard to collect the DNA of every person arrested. When they did, they found his DNA to be a match for the killings. They knew that Christopher, who was in his early 20s, was too young to have committed murders back in the 1980s. They concluded that a father or uncle of the young man must be the killer they had lazily been searching for. They tracked Christopher's family and discovered that Franklin would soon be dining at a pizza parlor. They planted themselves at the parlor in disguise and an officer dressed as a waiter took Franklin's plate. They tested the plate for DNA and found that it was a match to the grim sleeper. On July 7th, 2010, an unacceptable 25 years after his first known murder and 34 years after his first terrible rape took place in Germany, police arrested Lonnie David Franklin Jr. at his home. Following his arrest, the police held a press conference. They announced to the world that they had finally put this notorious killer behind bars. They claimed his arrest as a victory following two decades of exhausting detective work. This could not have been further from the truth. 
when director Nick Bloomfield was making Tales of the Grim Sleeper years later, he reached out to the mayor for an interview. The mayor denied his request via email, stating that the mayor will only speak of the decrease in crime in Los Angeles, but not on the Grim Sleeper case. They do not want to take any responsibility for their lack of action, which led to two decades of the city's most vulnerable being murdered by a serial killer loose on the streets. In Franklin's home, which was filled with junk and trash, police found 101 photographs of naked women, some dead, as well as videos of Lonnie raping over 160 women. Among the Polaroid stash was a single photo of survivor Anitra Washington. It was damning evidence. Franklin was charged with 10 counts of murder, but the true number of murders and rapes he committed will never be known. There was another victim, a man named Thomas Steele, that Franklin is also suspected of murdering but he was not formally charged of that crime. Anitra Washington testified in court. She recounted exactly what had happened to her, reliving the terror of that life-threatening night so many years ago. When asked if her rapist was in the room, she pointed to Franklin, saying with 100% certainty that he was the monster who had left her for dead. On March 28, 2020, Franklin was found unresponsive in his jail cell. His cause of death is still unknown. An autopsy report likely delayed due to the pandemic. While we may not exactly know what killed Franklin, we do know that he died alone in the cold of his cell, just as his victims died alone and cold on the dirty streets of LA. His victims were not nothing. They were individual people with hopes, dreams, and fears like the rest of us. Many of them were desperate, were working the streets and turning to drugs because they had no other choice. The grim sleeper took advantage of their situation. He murdered them, but their blood is also on the hands of their city. Thanks for listening, and remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room. Now I know that the sex worker subject is going to be a hot topic and people like to discuss those kinds of things. In my opinion, sex work needs to be legal. Think about it. They made drugs illegal how many years ago? They even waged war on drugs. And look how many non-violent drug offenders there are clogging up our prison systems. They just need to regulate it for the safety of everyone involved. 
not just the sex workers, but the people who pay the sex workers for their work. Everybody needs to be kept safe. In my opinion, more power to you. You do you. As long as it's not hurting anybody, and it's between two consenting adults, who cares what everybody else is doing? Who cares who's fucking who? So I do not condone any acts of violence, disrespect, committed against sex workers. Thank you. And if you have a loved one or know of anyone who's possibly committing human trafficking, first and foremost, please call 911 right away. But there is a human trafficking hotline. Call them. Whatever you need. 1-888-373-7888. They are available 24 hours a day. Seven days a week. They have languages in English, Spanish, plus 200 more languages. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Jury Room. I know it was a rough one from start to finish. Just a disgusting excuse of a human being. I hope you rot in fucking hell. You don't deserve any more attention than I've already given you. So with that being said, I would like to take a moment of silence for all of this disgusting killer's victims. Please join me in remembering them. Now again, do please do not forget to leave a review anywhere you can. On I am on almost every single major podcasting platform. Send me an email. Click the links below. Now, there is some exciting stuff coming up. I have some content that I'm working on that I feel like it's going to draw a lot of attention to this platform and I hope everybody comes along for the ride again you can find me on Lolly's true crime website which I will link below you can find me on my own website everything all links will be below make sure you click on them follow us join us for this journey and see where it takes us thanks for listening